0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to go over the endocrine system. If you're like me, I feel like we've gone over endocrine like eight times in our nursing career throughout undergrad and graduate school, but we wanted to make sure we had a very thorough outline of all the different types of diseases associated with the endocrine system and specifically add in another part that We really haven't had, and that's the anesthesia implications for these different diseases. To start us off with a very quick overview of the endocrine system itself, for the most part, we're going to be talking about three layers of signals being sent throughout the body, and it all starts with the hypothalamus. So that's the first signal is going to send information to the pituitary, and the pituitary is split into your anterior pituitary and your posterior pituitary. So what we're going to talk about with each of these disease processes is for the most part, you have a hormone being released from the hypothalamus that sends a signal to the pituitary. Most of the time it goes to the anterior pituitary and then the anterior pituitary is going to send out another signal that's going to bind to a target gland. And then that gland will then have its own hormones that it secretes that binds and does actions on different tissue or body parts. And so basically that is the the main pathway that we're going to focus on. But the posterior pituitary is slightly different in the fact that hormones are made in the hypothalamus and actually deposited and stored in the posterior pituitary. And then those are released and go to the uh, target tissues. And so there's only two hormones that we're going to talk about with the posterior pituitary and that's ADH and oxytocin. We're not gonna really talk about oxytocin too much, but we'll get into ADH here in a little bit when we talk about diabetes insipidus and your syndrome of inappropriate ADH. So we'll get into that later, but just understand that is basically the overview of the endocrine system is you have your hypothalamus sending a signal to your pituitary, which then sends a signal to another gland.
0: All right, so the first thing we wanna talk about is the growth hormone, and this is going to have the releasing hormone released from the hypothalamus. Also from the hypothalamus, you're gonna have the growth hormone inhibiting factor, and that's somatostatin. When it's releasing the releasing hormone, that will go down to the anterior pituitary, and that will release the actual growth hormone, which is somatotropin. What you need to know about this is growth hormone is stimulated by stress or trauma, also uh, deep sleep so you hear when you're a child you need to get good long rest that's true this is where the growth hormone is coming into play the growth hormone will decline as we age or it should decline as we age we'll get into some of the pathologies with the alterations in that and also it's important to know that growth hormone is interesting because it it doesn't target a specific gland instead it's going to target all tissues that are able to grow so this is a very general hormone some of the problems that you'll see with this is if you have deficient growth hormone in childhood it's going to lead to insufficient bone growth so this is where you get dwarfism the other side of this if you have over secretion it can lead to two things first it can lead to acromegaly and that's if you have this increased secretion after puberty if it's before puberty then that will lead to gigantism and so what's important to know about this is that they're going to have this over-secretion of growth hormone, which can have implications for their bones. They can have really thick bones. It will lead to glucose intolerance because growth hormone is a insulin antagonist. And so they can have intolerance to glucose levels. You can see hypertension with these patients. With hypertension, you can also get cardiomyopathy. One thing to know is that If it is a growth hormone secreting tumor, this is going to look a little differently because it will increase the amount of growth hormone, but it will decrease the other pituitary hormones release. So this is different. Usually when you see a pituitary tumor, you'll see an increase of all of the uh, hormones being released, but this is different where if it's a growth hormone secreting tumor, you'll see a suppression of other hormones while you'll see an increase in growth hormone secretion.
1: Perfect. So in order to treat acromegaly, basically, if you have this increasing growth hormone due to a tumor that's secreting the growth hormone, basically, you just want to do a surgical removal of that. You can also give some medications. So I know octetide is one that you can give. It's a somatostatin receptor agonist. If you remember somatostatin is the growth hormone inhibiting factor that's released from the hypothalamus. So it'll kind of have that inhibition of the growth hormone being secreted from the anterior pituitary. But if you're going to do a surgical removal, let's talk about the anesthesia considerations here. So due to these patients having really thick bones, they're going to have some differences in physical appearance. As Tanner mentioned, if it happens before puberty, their bones, Are going to grow really really long and thick if it happens after puberty their growth plates are already closed so they're just going to have these really thick bones and they're going to have some basically physical distortions so you might have trouble doing mask ventilation they're also going to have a lot of this overgrowth of soft tissue in the back of their mouth so they're going to make intubation very difficult so make sure you have the appropriate tools for difficult intubation you're also going to possibly need a smaller et tube size because these patients have vocal cord enlargement, and they also have subglottic narrowing. So that's going to make just really fun times when you're trying to prepare this patient for surgery. But uh, so you also want to know because it's going to be difficult that you should have the patient probably awake before you extubate just to make sure that they're going to be able to breathe fully with all that extra soft tissue. You don't want to have a difficulty re-intubating the patient if they're not ready for extubation. Usually these patients also are going to have a Mallampati score of 3 or 4, probably going to have some sleep apnea, just again because of all that extra soft tissue. So just know it's just going to be a difficult time. In terms of Neuraxial Anesthesia, it may be difficult to do a spinal or epidural just simply because of the vertebral overgrowth, and that can cause some kyphosis and osteoarthritis. So just the landmarks will be difficult to actually perform the Neuraxial Anesthesia. And as Tanner mentioned, these patients might be hyperglycemic due to the insulin antagonistic effects. So you might need to give that stress level glucocorticoid therapy, um, basically because we're going to get into this later in the talk, but you might have some adrenal axis impairment. And lastly, these patients are going to have some thickening of their bones in their wrist, and this can cause things such as like carpal tunnel syndrome. And basically, this is going to cause difficulty. If you're going to do an art line, you may not want to do it in the wrist simply because of this overgrowth. So just keep that in mind if you have a patient with acromegaly.
0: Awesome. So basically the main thing for these with the growth hormone deficiencies or over secretion is going to be difficult airway, whether that's difficulty getting them in line or just the difficulty with mask ventilation. They're going to have access issues, whether that's doing neuraxial anesthesia or doing art line placement, or things like that. And then they're going to have issues with their glycemic control. So just make sure that you have their blood sugar well controlled next thing we're going to talk about is adh basically this is vasopressin we give it all the time in the icu usually in the icu you give it to increase blood pressure does that by increasing the amount of water reabsorption in the renal collecting duct our body is constantly secreting this to retain our serum osmolarity around 280 290 so this is being made all the time and like cole said this is only one of two hormones that is stored in the posterior pituitary. It's made in the hypothalamus, but again, it's going to be stored in the posterior. Some issues we can have with this first is DI, diabetes insipidus. I feel like in the ICU, a lot of times you see this where you'll walk by your Foley bag and you're like, oh my goodness, it's just ready to explode. Super clear. This is where they do not have enough ADH Uh, in their body and they're not secreting enough ADH or they're not responding to the ADH that's being released. So instead, they're not retaining any of the water that they should be or reabsorbing in that collecting duct. Instead, everything is just being diuresed. So this could happen with head trauma. That's a huge indicator of uh, DI. If you have pituitary surgery, meningitis, if you have any kind of brain tumor, or it can be a side effect of some different medications. So one thing you'll see with this is an increased serum osmolarity. Again, because you're not retaining water, you'll have increased serum osmolarity. And then your urine is also going to be super dilute. So something you want to be careful about with your anesthesia consideration for these patients is they're going to be very sensitive to hypotensive agents. So this makes sense because they are massively diuresing. So you're not going to be retaining large intravascular volume. And so if you are doing anything that causes them to be hypotensive, they're not going to have that self-regulatory ability to retain that water. Also, the stress of surgery usually stimulates ADH release. So if they have DI, then you're going to have to artificially do that. So that's where you give the vasopressin. You also will want to monitor electrolytes. The collecting duct is a huge area where we are regulating our electrolytes. So if we are having issues with this, then obviously we're gonna want to monitor our electrolytes and make sure that we're not placing our patient at risk by having some electrolytes that are out of whack. The flip side of this is gonna be SIADH. So on the other side with DI, where you didn't have the release or you were immune to the effects of ADH, this is going to be where you have too much adh so it's just the opposite you're going to have more water retention so that causes your serum osmolarity to be lower so you're going to be lower than that 280 290 range and this is going to cause you to have really low sodium so this when you are taking care of these patients you need to be really careful because if you are trying to correct their sodium too quickly you're gonna have a massive fluid shift, and this can cause some shearing of your neurons and lead to seizures and things like that. So, the recommended is to change their sodium no more than one to two milk equivalents per hour. Treatment for this is you're gonna to have to figure out what's causing it. So, a lot of times, this can be from tumors, small cell carcinoma of the lung. You can also have this from head trauma. I feel like a lot of these are going to have head trauma as one of the causes. Also, if you have some pulmonary infection or hypothyroidism. For surgery, you're going to want to prevent nausea. And this is interesting because nausea will actually increase your ADH release. And if you already have super high ADH, obviously you'll want to avoid that. And then you want to be very judicious about how you give fluids. Again, because these patients are retaining their fluid, you do not want to overload them.
1: All right, so in review, question, if you have hypertonic urine compared to your plasma, do you think mm-hmm. you're going to have SIADH or DI?
0: So if your if your urine is more concentrated, then that's going to be your SIADH because you're retaining your water. If it would be less concentrated, that's when you see DI.
1: Awesome. All right. So good review on the hypo or hyper concentrations of ADH. Now we're going to move into your parathyroid. So if you recall, people usually have four parathyroid glands, sometimes three, sometimes five, but they're located on the posterior side of your thyroid gland. And basically the purpose of them is to release parathyroid hormone. So parathyroid hormone is important because it is responsible for increasing your serum calcium levels. And how it does this is it converts vitamin D to its active form. So I don't care how much vitamin D you have in your body, if you don't have parathyroid hormone, you're not going to be able to activate that vitamin D. And what that does is it increases your absorption of calcium from your intestinal tract. So it doesn't matter if you have vitamin D, if you don't have parathyroid hormone, you're not going to be able to absorb calcium. Additionally, parathyroid hormone is going to increase the calcium release from the bones. So it's going to cause more calcium to leave the bones and move into the actual serum space. So as you can expect, this is going to cause some decrease in the integrity of the bones, and we'll get into that in a second. And lastly, the parathyroid hormone also acts in the kidneys, and it causes reabsorption of your calcium while also excreting your phosphate. So I just like to think that calcium and phosphate are going to be opposite when we go through hypoparathyroid and hyperparathyroid. Just remember if calcium is low, phosphate's high, and vice versa. So basically how this feedback loop occurs is parathyroid hormone is released when your calcium level drops too low, which makes sense. If parathyroid hormone increases calcium, it's going to be turned off when the calcium level gets too high, and it's going to be turned on when the calcium level gets too low. And we're not really going to go into calcitonin too much, but I just want to also just recall that calcitonin, even though it's released from the thyroid gland and we're talking about parathyroid, just know that calcitonin does the opposite effect by decreasing your serum levels of calcium and taking it back into the bone, whereas this parathyroid hormone brings the calcium out of the bone into your actual serum space. So just keep that in mind. So let's go into hypoparathyroid so if your body does not make enough parathyroid hormone what makes sense then is you're going to have a decrease in calcium levels you have either an ionized calcium level or a total calcium level and so the difference here is basically calcium likes to bind to proteins in the serum space and the ionized level is the amount that's not bound to the protein. So that's the one that's gonna be able to cause all the different effects that we see. If it's bound to protein, it's not. So really what we care about is the ionized level, more importantly than the total level. But either way, if your ionized level is lower than 4.5 milligrams per deciliter, or your total is lower than 8.5, and your protein level is normal, then you would be considered to have a decreased amount of calcium levels, potentially related to a decrease in parathyroid hormone. Basically, causes of decreased in parathyroid hormone can be surgical removal of the actual gland itself. This can often be either caused because of a hyperparathyroid and they removed the gland or indirectly they were removing the thyroid gland and maybe accidentally removed the, the parathyroid gland with it, which we'll get into that when we talk about. The actual thyroid gland itself. Other causes can be radial neck dissection. And then so if your serum magnesium level is super high or super low, it can also cause hypoparathyroidism as well. So basically, it would make sense if we're talking about the pathophys of this in order to treat or supplement for this hypoparathyroid hormone, we're going to give calcium or we're going to give activated vitamin D. Basically, what that does then is it bypasses the actual need for the parathyroid hormone, and we just increase that calcium directly. When you have a decrease in calcium, so if you're like me, I thought about this backwards at first. So a decrease in calcium is going to produce hyperexcitability of the muscles and the nerve cells. And what I thought originally was, since calcium is required for contraction and contractility, that this is backwards. But really what this does is it lowers the threshold of excitability. And so we're not talking about the intracellular calcium, we're talking about the serum level. And so by lowering this excitability of the actual nerves and muscle cells, it's going to cause them to be stimulated more frequently. And then you're going to have really hyperactive deep tendon reflexes, tetany, some cramps, some numbness and tingling. And I think the classic ones that we always think about for low calcium are going to be your Travox and Trousseau sign. Basically, uh, this is when either your facial muscle is like contracted and twitchy when the facial nerve is stimulated, or when you have that kind of cramping inflection in your wrist and thumb when your blood pressure cuff has been inflated for more than three minutes. In terms of anesthesia considerations, the big thing you want to watch out for here is because you can have this increased contractility is you want to watch out for laryngospasm. That's the most susceptible to this low calcium level in your blood. And obviously, that is not going to be a good thing to have happen in the middle of a case. So you want to check for your calcium levels prior to going into surgery for these type of patients and try to correct that before you actually go in and do the procedure. All right. So knowing that, that should make your hyperparathyroidism easier to understand. So basically, this is going to be when you have an excess amount of parathyroid hormone. And this is usually due to either a hyperplasia or Adenoma in your parathyroid gland itself. Usually, this is caused in just one or two of the parathyroid glands, so not all four of them. And so, if that's the case, you can just surgically remove the one or two glands that are affected. What this is going to cause is an increase in that calcium moving out of your bones. And so, you're going to have weak bones. And then, you're going to have such a high level of calcium that you might have calcifications forming in different parts of the body, such as your kidneys. You might have then forming in your blood vessels, which will cause hypertension. It could even form in your stomach, which will cause some ulcers, your pancreas, etc. Basically, also know that, as we talked about earlier, the decrease in calcium will make it easier to stimulate your nerves and muscles. So this would be the flip side. This raises that threshold and makes it harder to actually stimulate your, your nervous system and your muscles, so it'll cause some depression in that environment. So you might have some central nervous system depression. In terms of anesthesia considerations, like I said before, surgical removal of the affected gland is is the best thing to do. When we're going to do pre op stuff before this procedure, in order to get the calcium back down to normal levels, you can give lots of isotonic saline and then give diuretics to flush out that calcium. And basically, as we said, you're going to have that CNS depression, so you might not need as many sedatives during the case. And then just know that you might have a short QT interval with these elevated calcium levels, so just keep in mind that you should be watching your heart rhythm strip, and just make sure that you're not having any arrhythmias occur. And then, like I said, you might be prone to bone fractures, so be very careful when you're moving these patients. And then with anything, whenever we remove a gland, with any of these disease processes that we're going to talk about, you want to make sure that the opposite effect doesn't happen after the removal of the gland. So usually, if you're hyper, whatever we're talking about, and we remove that gland, just make sure they don't go hypo. So in this case, we want to make sure we're watching out for hypocalcemia and we're watching for those signs of low calcium levels.
0: So the main thing we want to keep in mind is for hypoparathyroid, laryngospasm, that's going to be a huge consideration. So make sure that that's locked in your brain. Okay, so moving on, the next thing we're going to talk about is the pancreas. And here we're going to talk about diabetes and the different effects that that can have on your patient. Your pancreas is going to have beta and alpha cells. Your beta cells are going to make insulin and insulin as we all know is going to decrease your glucose levels It can do that by causing glucose to be stored as glycogen basically it's just trying to store your glucose and reduce your levels of circulating glucose the other side of that is your alpha cells that makes glucagon glucagon is going to try to create glucose or increase your blood sugar When there's low blood sugar levels and so it'll do that by causing the glycogen which your insulin caused to be stored to go back into glucose it can cause your fat to become fatty acids or amino acids to glucose so there's several different ways that glucagon can work to cause your blood sugar levels to increase how this is broken down is with diabetes you have two types type one this is where you don't have insulin and your body is not creating insulin. And so this is an immune destruction of your beta cells within your pancreas. Type two is where you have impaired insulin secretion, or the rest of your body is just basically resistant to the insulin that you're releasing. A lot of times this can happen because of obesity or lifestyle choices where your body is literally just so used to a high glucose level, that even when it's just constantly secreting insulin, your pancreas either tires out or your body just becomes oblivious to the insulin that it is secreting. This can cause all sorts of problems. Basically, I feel like this just affects every body system. So you can have problems with neurologic systems. You can have cardiovascular effects, hypertension, CAD. You can have kidney disease. A lot of these patients wind end up on dialysis, those types of things. Because of that, you can also correlate back to hypertension. And so this is just causes a lot of complications when you think about your anesthesia plan. A good thing to know is you want to get an A1C on these patients. A lot of times their insulin may be regulated or in check when they come to you, but you need to look at what it looks like for the past three months. You're gonna wanna try to keep them pretty close to what their normal blood glucose is. Trying to keep them too low is probably gonna have worse effects for your patient throughout their anesthetic plan then just keeping them pretty similar to their baseline. You're not trying to fix their blood sugar levels over the course of a case. So I feel like the most of the literature supports just keeping them pretty close. Things you want to do is think about how this is affecting your different body systems. So what are things we're going to want to see? Well, you're going to want to get an EKG because this is going to tell you about your cardiovascular status. See if they've had a previous MI or just get a baseline of their cardiac picture. So also you want to look at neuropathy, just get a really good baseline of their status before him. Obviously if they have any kind of nerve injuries or anything during the case, it's really important to have a good baseline prior to anesthesia. Neuropathy can also decrease their response to hypoxia. And so if you have, kind of like we talked about with opioids last week, but they're going to have a decreased sensitivity to hypoxia. So this can make them really sensitive to respiratory depressant drugs, aka opioids. The other thing we're going to talk about is they have delayed gastric emptying. And so you may want to consider RSI in these patients simply because they may be at an increased risk for aspiration. They will also have some issues with their musculoskeletal system, and so they may have limited ability to move their head and neck. And so you can test this with the prayer sign, just have them touch their palms together. If they're not able to touch their palms, then this could be an indication that they're not going to have ability to move their neck, which could cause problems aligning your axis for your DL. For treating these patients, you're going to want to stop all oral glucose meds. So mainly we think of metformin. It's going to cause lactic acidosis within the surgery time. And also for their long-acting insulin, that's the one you're going to want to just give half their dose. So if they have their long-acting, you can just give half their dose. And then just make sure that you're checking their blood sugars frequently throughout the case. Afterwards, if they're altered or have some complications, you don't want to have that be part of your time that you're trying to figure out what the problem is, you're going to want to already know what their blood sugar is and be able to rule that out pretty quickly. We all know this can also have problems with delayed wound healing, infection risk. So be cognizant of that as well.
1: Awesome. So diabetes is just a big issue that I feel like a lot of our population in the United States has either type one or type two. I feel like almost every week I'm taking care of several patients with diabetes. So it's important just to understand all the pathophysiology behind this. And what it's going to do to affect our anesthesia care now going forward from here there's several different alterations we can have to our blood sugar we can either have hypoglycemia we can have diabetic ketoacidosis or we can have hypoglycemic hyperosmolar state or hhs so going through each of those three if you have hypoglycemia basically it's classified by your serum glucose being less than 70 milligrams per deciliter and what this does is it impairs the patient's cerebral It can cause dizziness, confusions, headaches, even seizures can occur if it gets too low. It'll cause some tachycardia, some diaphoresis, their pupils will dilate, they can even have some vasoconstriction from this. Well, what's interesting about this is almost all of those things that I just talked about are going to be masked during our anesthesia care. So it's going to be very difficult to diagnose somebody with hypoglycemia unless you're actually testing their sugar during the case. So just keep in mind that if we have a patient who is diabetic, get a baseline before they actually come into the the surgery. Previously, I was told, you know, keep their sugars down below 100, try to keep it down 70 to 100 range. Well, now they're finding that that can actually increase the risk of hypoglycemia, which will cause some more drastic effects than if the patient just has a slightly elevated sugar because they're already used to having elevated sugar. So it's more important to keep the patient in the mid-100 range than try to get it all the way down to below 100, simply Mm -hmm. because we're not going to be able to know unless you're, you're constantly checking if they are hypoglycemic. On the flip side of that, when you have hyperglycemia, depending on if you're type 1 or type 2, is usually when you'll see the difference between diabetic ketoacidosis or HHS. So typically, diabetic ketoacidosis is seen in type 1 diabetes patients. And basically, this is the result of a high serum glucose level Usually, you're going to have that at minimum of at least 250 milligrams per deciliter. I've seen patients well over 1,000 with it, but you need at least about 250 to, to start having this process where they, the body starts to produce these ketones, and so you're going to have ketonemia and acidemia. Basically, you're going to have this acidotic picture along with a elevated anion gap. So basically, for those of you that don't remember what an anion gap is, it's where you compare the positive and negative electrolytes in your blood. And if you have an elevated anion gap, basically is saying you have not enough bicarb because you're in this acidotic picture is the way that I remember it. And so you're usually going to be trending these patients' bicarb level, the anion gap level to determine what severity of DKA they're in. Basically, this is going to present with A lot of dehydration. So, we're going to be giving fluids for these patients as well as giving them insulin to bring their blood sugars back down. They're also going to have some tachycardia associated with this, and their serum osmolarity is going to be above 300. This can also cause a little bit of hypotension. So, you might have some lactic acidosis in here as well, mixed in with the ketoacidosis. But basically, the overall picture is you're going to be in an acidotic state with these ketones. That's what separates this from your HHS. And when treating it, just keep in mind that whenever you're giving the insulin, in these large amounts and you're going to be increasing their ph to correct their acidosis this is going to cause a shift in your potassium back into cells and it'll cause a decrease in the serum level of potassium so just keep in mind that you're constantly checking your potassium to make sure that it's not going to be decreasing and then lastly let's talk about hhs so this is more so type 2 i think you can also have this with type 1 but basically it's just the elevation of the blood sugars without the ketones and acidotic picture So basically, you can still have that hypotension and some lactic acidosis that occurs with it, but it's not due to the ketoacidosis. More so, this is glucose above 600 and your hyperosmolarity is above 330, so you're even more dehydrated. And you just want to, again, correct it with insulin, correct it with rehydration therapy. But again, you're just not going to have that picture of the acidotic state with this one. So that wraps up our first talk on the endocrine system. I know it's a long and drawn-out topic. So next time, we're going to talk about the other sections that we didn't get to today basically will include some problems with the adrenal system going to the thyroid and we'll, we'll just cover some other areas that are important to keep in mind when we're doing anesthesia care for anything that has endocrine problems so stay tuned for our second episode where we talk about the remainder of the endocrine system